0: Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott with excerpts from his book, The Birds, Our Teachers. From this unique and intriguing collector's edition of this best-selling book, John Stott expands on Martin Luther's exhortation from the Sermon on the Mount.
1: Let the birds be your theologians. He reveals lessons on faith
0: from the feeding and drinking habits of various birds. Today's message is, The Birds Are Our Teachers.
1: The Birds Are Teachers by John Stott Look at the birds of the air, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 26. You see, he is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. In other words, we have as many teachers and preachers as there are little birds in the air. Martin Luther, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, 1521. What it is to be man, oh, that we might learn this from the lilies and the birds. So, in accordance with the directions of the gospel, let us consider seriously the lilies and the birds as teachers and imitate them. Soren Kierkegaard in A Godly Discourse, entitled The Lilies of the Field and the Birds of the Air, 1849. God our maker teaches more to us than to the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the air. Elihu in Job 35, 11.
0: It's largely to my father that I owe my commitment to birdwatching. He was a physician, cardiologist to be precise, and like most scientists, although we lived in the heart of London, he took a lively interest in all branches of natural history. In particular, he was a good amateur botanist. So during the summer holidays, beginning when I was a boy of only five or six years old, he used to take me out for walks in the countryside, telling me to shut my mouth and open my eyes and ears. It was excellent training and observation, and I was soon hooked. When in 1945 I was ordained into the pastoral ministry of the Church of England, I returned to London, and I was surprised to discover that bird-watching was possible even there. Winter-visiting duck patronised the reservoirs which supply Londoners with their water, and the royal parks harbour many species in both summer and winter. In addition, London's bombed buildings provided birds with excellent feeding and nesting sites. Kestrels hunted for mice in the war-torn ruins and reared their young on the ledges of precipitous walls. black redstarts availed themselves of convenient holes in which to nest. And while I was serving Holy Communion early on Sunday mornings in All Souls Church, and there was no roar of traffic, I could distinctly hear the Black Red Star's rasping song while it perched on the top of Broadcasting House next door, the headquarters of the BBC. Ten years or so later, I began to travel overseas to lecture and to preach. And, of course, I took my binoculars with me. For the truth is that there are birds everywhere. The widely accepted estimate is that there are about 9,000 different species in the world, They occur in every zone and every terrain, from arid desert to tropical rainforest, in town and country, and from the Arctic to the Antarctic. Moreover, the variety of birds, in size and shape, plumage and diet, habits and habitat, is truly astonishing. Take size and weight as an example. The tiniest bird is the bee hummingbird, which is endemic to Cuba, From the tip of its beak to the tip of its tail, it's 2.25 inches long, and without beak or tail, only one inch. When it flies, it is easily mistaken for an insect. In fact, I have myself watched a toady in the Caribbean chasing a diminutive hummingbird under the illusion that it was an insect, suddenly giving up the chase when it realised that its prey was a bird and not a bee. The bee hummingbird weighs 0.056 ounces, whereas a flightless ostrich can weigh up to 200 kilograms or 30 stone. The largest flying bird in the world is the wandering albatross. Its wingspan averages about 12 feet. Roger Torrey-Peterson, who in his prime was the leading American birdwatcher and who died in 1996 claimed after a long lifetime of observing that he'd seen about 4,500 species, just over half. Peter Winter, however, in his book The Adventures of a Birdwatcher, describes his nearly 100 expeditions, which took him to all six continents and led to sightings of 7,208 species. But I believe the record was held by Phoebe Snetzinger, whose tally before she died recently was more than 8,000. For myself, although I've had the privilege of travelling in many countries and habitats, I reckon I've seen only about 2,500 species. At all events, only one person has seen them all, and that, of course, is God himself, their creator. Let birds fly above the earth he commanded, across the expanse of the sky. So God created every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1 verses 20 and 21. In consequence, God is able to claim, I know all the birds of the air and the creatures of the field are mine. Psalm 50 verse 11, literally. More than that, Since Jesus said that not a single sparrow falls to the ground without the knowledge of God, he must know not only every species of bird, but every individual member of each species as well, and that surely would mean many thousands of millions. It was Jesus Christ himself in the Sermon on the Mount who told us to be bird watchers. Behold the fowls of the air! Here's how the King James Version renders his command in Matthew 6.26. Translated into basic English, however, his instruction becomes watch birds. So we have the highest possible authority for this activity. Moreover, Jesus meant more than that we should notice them, but the Greek verb employed here means to fix the eyes on or to take a good look at. This will certainly include our study and appreciation of their plumage and behaviour. But the Bible tells us that birds have lessons to teach us as well. As a matter of fact, Scripture bids us go beyond birds and includes in our, to include in our interest everything that God has made. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them, Psalm 111 verse 2. And since the works of the Lord refer to his works of both creation and redemption, it seems to me that nature study and Bible study should go together. Many Christians have a good doctrine of redemption, but need a better doctrine of creation. We ought to pursue at least one aspect of natural history. So, over the years, I've been trying to develop a new branch of science, which a friend and I have jocularly called ornithology, or the theology of birds. It's founded on an important biblical principle, namely that in the beginning God made man, male and female, in his own image and gave us dominion over the earth and its creatures. Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28. Because we alone among God's creatures bear his image, we are radically different from animals even though we share with them the same dependence on our Creator for our life. But as we are different, Scripture expects us to behave differently. At times, we are rebuked for behaving like animals. For example, don't be like the horse or mule which have no understanding, Psalm 32, verse 9. At other times, Scripture chides us because animals do better by instinct than we do by choice. For example, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. Proverbs 6, verse 6. Martin Luther, in his fine exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, became quite lyrical when he commented on Jesus' teaching about the birds. He wrote as following.
1: You see, he is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. It is a great and abiding disgrace to us that in the gospel a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men. We have as many teachers and preachers as there are little birds in the air. Their living example is an embarrassment to us. Whenever you listen to a nightingale, therefore, you are listening to an excellent preacher. It is as if he were saying, I prefer to be in the Lord's kitchen. He has made heaven and earth, and he himself is the cook and the host. Every day, he feeds and nourishes innumerable little birds out of his hand. The value of sparrows. Self-esteem.
0: One of the most crucial elements in human maturity is the development of a proper self-esteem. Some people have an inflated view of their own importance, while others have crippling inferiority feelings. In place of both extremes, having too high or too low a self-regard, we need to think of ourselves, the Apostle Paul wrote, with sober judgment. Romans 12, verse 3. And in order to do this, we need to remember who we are, according to Scripture. On the one hand, we have dignity as human beings made in the image of God, and on the other, a certain depravity as sinners under the judgment of God. We are the products both of the creation and of the fall, and this is the paradox of our humanness. Of the two unbalanced extremes, feelings of superiority and inferiority, the second may well be the commoner today. There are many people who feel unwanted and unloved and consider themselves to be worthless. So it is exceedingly important that Jesus spoke of our value as human beings and compared and contrasted it with the value of sparrows. Don't be afraid, he said. You are worth more than many sparrows, Matthew 10 verse 31 and Luke 12 verse 7. Jesus deliberately chose the most insignificant little creature he could think of and then argued from the lesser to the greater. If not a single sparrow is forgotten by God, Luke 12, verse 6, all will fall to the ground apart from his knowledge and permission, Matthew 10, verse 29, how much more will he remember and protect his human children? This assurance grows when we recall that sparrows have a poor reputation and are often regarded as useless and disposable. To begin with, they may be the commonest and most widely distributed of all land birds. Passer domesticus, the so-called English house sparrow, is to be found everywhere. Native to Europe, Africa and Asia, it was introduced during the early part of the 19th century to Australia and New Zealand and in 1850 to the United States in the hope that it would eradicate a plague of tree-stripping caterpillars. Some scholars place houseparrows in a family of their own, the Passeridae. Others regard them as belonging to the family of weavers, the Ploceidae whereas the sparrows of the United States, such as the song sparrow, the chipping sparrow, the swamp sparrow, belong to the buntings, M. Berizidae. Now, these two families, together, amount to nearly 700 species and constitute the largest of all bird groups. The universality of house sparrows is due mainly to their adaptability. They eat anything and they nest everywhere. As for their diet, although they are mainly seed-eaters, they will in fact consume everything edible. As for their nesting sites, any hole or niche will do. In my home city of London, they've been impertinent enough to nest 165 feet high on Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square. On the Victoria Tower of the Houses of Parliament, in the right arm of the Duke of Wellington's statue, entry through a hole in one of his fingers, and even in the mouth of one of Trafalgar Square's bronze lions. In addition to the apparent insignificance of sparrows, owing to their sheer numbers, some writers have spoken evil of their character. They're said to be cocky, noisy, aggressive, garrulous, impudent, peevish, and other horrid things besides. Buffon the 18th-century French naturalist, wrote about the sparrow in very derogatory terms. I quote, It is extremely destructive, its plumage is entirely useless, its flesh is indifferent food, its notes are grating to the ear, and its familiarity and petulance are disgusting. Why, even Viscount Grey of Thalydon, British Foreign Secretary from 1905, to 1916, whose book The Charm of Birds uh, has delighted generations of birdwatchers, could not at first find a good word for sparrows. I quote from Viscount Gray. Sparrows will chirp in the early morning, he wrote, in such a manner as to be a nuisance while other birds are singing. Their nests are so untidy as to be eyesores they multiply exceedingly and damage crops of grain. They despoil crocus flowers as well. What then is there to be said in a sparrow's favour? Only this, quoting Viscount Gray again. It is a bird, and being a bird, it has feathers. And having feathers, it has not been able to avoid a certain degree of beauty. Then it must be admitted that sparrows are very clever birds. These largely negative assessments of sparrows make Jesus' positive reference to them all the more striking. But these little creatures, lacking both colourful plumage and musical song, are nevertheless cherished, remembered and protected by God, he said. The so-called infancy gospel of Thomas preserves a rather charming story, though almost certainly not authentic, of Jesus as a boy of five. He and other children were playing together beside a stream, and Jesus fashioned twelve sparrows out of soft clay. When his father Joseph asked him why he was breaking the law on the Sabbath day, Jesus clapped his hands together and cried out to the sparrows. He said to them, "'Go!' and the sparrows took their flight and went away chirping." In contrast to this apocryphal story, what Jesus is recorded in the canonical Gospels of Matthew and Luke as having said about sparrows is certainly authentic. According to Matthew, he asked whether two sparrows were not sold for a penny, Matthew 10.29. According to Luke, his question was whether five sparrows were not sold for two pennies, Luke 12.6. This arithmetic has always puzzled commentators, but Adolf Deismann, in his famous book Light from the Ancient East, offered a ready threefold explanation. First, of all birds sold in the market as food for the poor, sparrows were the cheapest. Secondly, they were sold either by the pair or in fives. Thirdly, The market price in the time of Jesus was a penny a pair, and as a reduction for quantity, two pennies for five. Poor, miserable little creatures, fluttering there, such numbers of them in the vendor's cages. A great many can be had for a very small sum, so trifling is their value. And yet each one of them was loved by the Heavenly Father. How much more will God care for man whose soul is worth more than the whole world. End of the Deisman quotation. Mrs. Clare Kipps has described in her little book entitled Sold for a Farthing, the remarkable relationship which she established during World War II with a little foundling cock sparrow whom she called Clarence. Clarence had extraordinary gifts as both an actor and a musician and developed an entirely uncharacteristic capacity for song. When he was approaching death at the age of twelve, Claire Kipps wrote, We are assured on the highest authority, and in no uncertain language, that no sparrow falls without the knowledge of the father of love. I have confidence that mine will not be an exception. And so it proved to be. Clarence died on August 23rd, 1952, four months after the book had been published. He was courageous, intelligent, and apparently conscious to the end, she said. The cause of death, extreme old age. It was in 1967, when she was an athletic teenager, that Johnny Erickson Tada broke her neck in a diving accident in Chesapeake Bay. It left her totally and permanently paralysed. After 25 years in a wheelchair, she began to have health problems and had to go back to bed. Hoping to cheer her up, her husband, Ken, hung a bird feeder outside her window. At first she envied the birds, their freedom. But then she remembered what Jesus had said about sparrows. She wrote,
1: I glanced at the bird feeder and smiled. I could understand Jesus noticing an eagle, but a scrappy sparrow? They're a dime a dozen. Jesus said so himself. Yet from thousands of bird species, the Lord chose the most insignificant, least noticed, scruffiest bird of all, a pint-sized thing that even dedicated birdwatchers ignore. That thought alone calmed my fears. I felt significant and noticed. If the great God of heaven concerns himself with a ragtag little sparrow clinging to the bird feeder outside my window, he cares about you.
0: As Sevilla D. Martin's old-fashioned American lyric puts it, His
1: eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me.
0: I return at the end of this chapter to where it began, namely the question of self-esteem. The only way to develop a true sense of self-worth is to come to recognise our value to God. Jesus declared, on the one hand, that not a single sparrow is forgotten by God, and on the other that we are worth more than many sparrows, It is an a fortiori, or how much more, argument that if God cares for sparrows, which in some ways, as we have seen, are the most insignificant of all birds, how much more does he care about us? Indeed, he has proved his love for us in the cross of Christ. As Archbishop William Temple once put it, my worth is what I'm worth to God, and that is a marvellous great deal, for Christ died for me.
1: Chapter 5 The Drinking of
0: Pigeons Gratitude. It may come as a surprise to my readers to learn that birds can teach us gratitude, but it is so. Gratitude is certainly a godly virtue which should characterize all the people of God. True, during their wilderness wanderings, the Israelites were continually complaining against God and against Moses as well. Yet, in the later liturgical worship of the temple, one of the commonest refrains was O give thanks to the Lord for he is good, with the congregational response for his love endures forever. Individual Israelites also learned to encourage themselves to give God praise and thanksgiving, indeed to thank him with all their being For all his benefits. Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2. If that was the case in Old Testament days, how much more should it be so for New Testament Christians? During his public ministry, when Jesus healed ten men suffering from leprosy, he expressed astonishment that only one of them came back to give thanks. If we've even tasted the grace of God, gratitude should rise spontaneously within us. So when Paul prayed for his Colossian friends, he included the petition that they might be joyfully giving thanks to the Father for their salvation, Colossians 1, verses 11 and 12. Yes, and for other blessings too. In the 1662 Anglican prayer book, the beautifully worded General Thanksgiving expresses our gratitude to God, quote, "...for our creation," preservation and all the blessings of this life but above all for god's inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our lord jesus christ and we thank him too for the means of grace and for the hope of glory but what has all this to do with birds let me tell you come with me in your imagination to the country of ghana on the coast of west africa All Africans love proverbs and the pithy truths which they contain. But Ghanaians outshine their fellow West Africans in their devotion to proverbial wisdom. They seem to have a proverb for everything. And when I was there a few years ago, I began to make a collection of them. They have an excellent proverb on gratitude, and this is where birds come into the picture. Even the chicken, when it drinks,
1: lifts its head to heaven to thank God for the water.
0: Behind this proverb lies the observation that not only chickens, but all birds drink by gravity. That is, they dip their beak in the water, take and hold a sip of it, and then lift their heads high in the air until the water trickles down their throat. Of course, they are not literally thanking God for the water, but they look as if they are, and Garnetians have turned their action into a parable. Did I say that all birds drink in this way by gravity? I did, but I was wrong. The class RVs, birds, is divided into 27 orders, and all of them practice trickle-down drinking except one, namely the columbiformes, to which the 250 or so pigeons and doves of the world belong. They drink not by gravity, but by suction, like horses. They dip their beak in a pool or puddle and suck. They never lift their head to heaven to thank God for the water. In consequence, and in a jocular way, I sometimes refer to pigeons and doves as the most pagan birds in the world, since they are entirely wanting in gratitude. In other ways, however, doves redeem their reputation for they occupy an honourable place in the biblical story. It was a dove which announced the end of the flood by bringing Noah a freshly plucked olive leaf so that he has been called the world's first pigeon fancier. And it was also like a dove that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism. Thus, a dove was given a prominent place at the beginning of two new eras of grace, one following the flood and the other inaugurating the ministry of Jesus. If their drinking habits make them look ungrateful, we must remember that Jesus called them innocent, for he told his disciples to be as innocent as doves. Matthew 10:16. In North America, there are only eight native and resident pigeons and doves. The most familiar is the mourning dove, so called because of its monotonous, lugubrious call. It is found all over the United States, and in every month of the year, it is nesting somewhere. Also very well known is the common domestic pigeon, which populates most of the cities of the world. It is not a native North American bird, however, having been introduced. In fact, it has been domesticated for thousands of years. It's descended from the wild rock dove of the sea cliffs, Accustomed to building its nest on a cliff ledge, it has no difficulty in adapting to the ledges of buildings. Breeding as it does in great numbers, it tends to be something of a nuisance in cities. Back in 1385, the Bishop of London complained about the mess they were making on St Paul's Cathedral, and Samuel Pepys, the famous English diarist, describes how, during the fire of London in 1666, The pigeons were reluctant to leave their homes and so lingered until their wings were singed and they fell to their death. It is always a delight to watch a courtship display of members of the pigeon family. The male will strut pompously round the female of his choice, now pirouetting, now bobbing and bowing, all the time exposing his iridescent green neck feathers and cooing most piteously. But the next time you spot a pigeon or a dove, see if I'm not right in saying that it drinks by suction, without lifting its head to heaven to thank God for the water. Instead, it keeps its beak in the puddle, And let its omission challenge us at least to lift our hearts, if not our heads, to God in thankfulness for his many and great mercies. Saying grace before meals is an excellent habit, especially within the family at home. Then the children will learn early in life that it is a good thing to acknowledge our humble dependence on God and our gratitude for his provision of all our needs. But we must not limit our thanksgiving to our food. We need to be thankful for all God's gifts. When the late Henri Nouwen visited Latin America, he entitled his published journal, Gracias, Thank You. And in his conclusion, he explained why.
1: Whatever is given, money, food, work, a handshake, a smile, a good word, or an embrace, it is a reason to rejoice and say, Gracias. I learned that everything that is, is freely given by the God of love. All is grace. Light and water, shelter and food, work and free time, children, parents and grandparents, birth and death. It is all given to us. Why? So that we can say gracias, thanks.
0: G.K. Chesterton expressed this very same truth with his customary vigour. You say
1: grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing and grace before I dip the pen in the ink.
0: Conclusion Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 make a significant pair. Both are invitations to worship, and both begin and end with the same formula, Praise the Lord, O my soul. But Psalm 103 celebrates the goodness of God in salvation, forgiving our sins and keeping his covenant, whereas Psalm 104 celebrates the greatness of God in creation, establishing heaven, earth, and sea, and sustaining their creatures with life and food. In his rehearsal of wildlife in Psalm 104, the psalmist twice makes an honourable mention of the birds of the air. He refers to their main activities, singing and nesting, and he relates them to the Lord's well-watered trees. The birds of the
1: air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. There, that is in the trees, the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the pine trees.
0: Here, then, is an early allusion to ecology, that is, to living creatures in their natural environment. God both plants and waters the trees, the birds both sing and nest in them. Indeed, all creatures are dependent on their environment, and loss of habitat is the major cause of loss of species. It was Jeremiah in the 7th century BC who foretold the evils of habitat destruction. He combined the roles of patriot and prophet, and it caused him great anguish. He was torn between his patriotic love for his own country and his prophetic warning of God's coming judgment on it. If the people stubbornly maintained their refusal to repent, he cried, the Babylonian army would invade from the north and would devastate the land. Four times he repeated his statement, I looked... He looked at the earth and the heavens. He looked at the mountains and at the hills, at city and sky, at orchard and town. And each time when he looked, he saw only destruction. The earth had again become formless and empty, having returned to the primeval chaos of Genesis 1 verse 2. The heavens had become dark as they were before God had said, Let there be light. The mountains were quaking and the hills swaying, And worst of all, there were no people and there were no birds, For every bird in the sky had flown away. Why? Because the fruitful land was a desert, he replies, and all its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. We would do well to reflect on Jeremiah's warning of a possible return to pre-creation chaos, darkness and devastation. One of God's creation blessings was the appearance of birds to fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. One of his judgments would be their disappearance. So let's resolve to do all we can to protect and preserve our unique God-given environment and so continue to enjoy its God-given biodiversity, not least its fascinating birds. In Britain, we are proud of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, which recently celebrated its centenary and now has more than a million members. It owns and manages about 120 bird reserves. Nobody seems to know how the Alvacet came to be the symbol of the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, but it is certainly appropriate. The avocets disappeared as a breeding species in the UK in the middle of the 19th century and reappeared only in 1947 in Suffolk, when one group nested at Minsmere and another on Havergate Island. Thanks to the energetic activities of local birdwatchers and to the extraordinary measures taken by the RSPB at Minsmere to create a habitat suitable for avocets, they are once again well-established breeding birds. In the United States, the National Audubon Society, named after the 19th century American naturalist and artist John James Audubon, was founded in 1905 and has more than 200 local chapters. Dedicated to conservation of all kinds, it wages an unremitting war against such evils as air pollution, pesticides and deforestation. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.